Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 31 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And this month, unfortunately, Moira is sick, so not able to join me. Fortunately, I've got another co-host to help out, and Dr. Simon Frankel, welcome. Thanks for having me back. Of course, we have you back. You've been so good the other times you've been on the podcast. So yeah, really nice. Simon's going to talk about the Sleep 2018 meeting that he's just been to in Baltimore and give us some of the highlights of the research and clinical work that that's been going on. So if you like the podcast, remember to give us a review on iTunes. And if there's topics you want us to cover in future episodes, send us an email at podcast at sleephub.com.au. So the Sleep 2018 meeting, it's a big meeting, Simon. Yeah, no, it certainly is. And uh, yeah, definitely the highlight of my academic year. I you know, pretty much go most years. Really attracted by the the breadth of information that's sort of provided across the, the four or five days that I'm there. Not just in terms of the the subjects and the topics which sort of cover broadly the field of sleep medicine, but the you know the practitioners and the clinicians and the researchers that are delivering that across you know a variety of different um, sort of learning contexts. So yeah, you know, it's really a fantastic experience. Yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't make it this year, and I don't think I went last year either. But next year is on the cards, hoping to get there. You missed out on some pretty hellish jet lag, which I, I probably complain about this every year. But East Coast US from Australia is a long way, and um, yeah. I suffered an intractable jet lag this time. We, yeah, I'll touch on it in a few moments, but I, uh, quite a significant issue. And exactly, it's hard. It's hard to go from Australia to the East Coast. That's, yeah, that is a tough haul, and yeah, hopefully some of the research that you know, comes out at these meetings and circadian sort of work is going to make that easier for all of us. So there's a couple of things just to highlight that have happened uh, recently around sleep. What a strange world we live in. There's a couple of articles in the media recently about the sleeping beauty diet. And crazily enough, it's people who are taking sleeping pills to make themselves sleep all day so they don't eat as a way of losing weight. I don't know where the rationale for that comes from. Have you heard of that before, Simon? Uh, first time now. Uh, seems completely ridiculous. I mean, is it effective? Of course it's not effective. <laughs> no, it's absolutely no data to support it, but in sort of a pop culture thing, there is a bit of a movement for this sleeping beauty diet. And I had a journalist writing an article about it sort of ask me for comments and I had to restrain myself and not just go, are you kidding me? You know, how crazy is that? Because really at face value, if we look at sleep disorders – Essentially, they're characterised by increases in appetite and increases in caloric consumption, even if people are awake for less hours. And so this whole concept of just being awake for less hours means you're going to take in less calories. It's completely non-biological. So, yeah, crazy. It hasn't appeared on Gwyneth Paltrow's blog, but that's the type of thing (laughs) exactly I'd expect from the sort of goop site and clean sleep and that type of thing. Now, I've got to confess, I'm a bit of a netball tragic, so I haven't confessed this previously on the podcast, but if I you know, if I could come back and have a second career, it would be as a commentator for professional netball. I really reckon that's my sec- second calling. My family hates it. They watch the netball with me and I call out the stats and I know everything that's going on. So one of the things I've loved doing this year is I got the opportunity to talk to the Magpies netball team about sleep. And, you know, I was a bit starstruck talking to all the players and things. But the thing I've got to confess is... After I spoke to them, they've lost every single game since, and I'm really feeling pretty bad. Might be one to revise the advice that you were giving them about um, sleep around performance. I know, and I thought I was so well-intentioned, and you know, I thought I was doing such a good job, but Anyway, so the last game of the season this coming week, so hopefully they'll be able to pull one out and have a win over the Firebirds this week. Good luck with that. 
So the theme for this month's podcast is talking about the SLEEP 2018 meeting and some of the latest clinical updates and research uh, from researchers around the world in sleep. And as Simon said in the introduction, it's a big meeting and it's held in the US because it really is a US convened meeting and it's the largest meeting for sleep internationally. There are some European meetings and other meetings we have one in Australia, but the US one's really by far and away the largest, usually at least 5,000 delegates and a really big trade show and held in June every year. And you've talked to us a bit about sort of why go, Simon, but what are some of the things you get out of going to that type of meeting? Yeah, I think part of it, I guess, from my point of view, serves as a calibration to make sure that, you know, where I'm at in terms of my clinical practice and and how I'm approaching diagnosis and management of my patients is contemporary. Because I think we're all, you know, even those of us who are regular reading journals are liable to get sort of fixed in certain patterns about how we deal with things. And I think that this just freshens it up um, and really keeps you at the forefront of, of where things are moving. Because, you know, a lot of our patients are there. And I think that if we're, if we're a step behind that, you know, I don't think it's a great look. So, so part of that is just really making sure that my practice is contemporary and to get a feel for where the field's moving because there is a lot of basic research presented there, very large poster sessions where you know hundreds of new posters are, are presented every day. And so you know some of this is sort of at the translation at that forefront of uh, you know research be you know becoming clinical practice and just getting an idea of, of where all that's heading. Absolutely, you know I think that they're really good points. The other thing I reflect on when I go to conferences as well, it's it's when we sort of pause and take time out from our day-to-day work of seeing people sort of across the desk all day. And actually what we're focused on is reflection, thinking about, you know, why we do things, could we do things differently? So yeah, it almost doesn't matter sometimes what the conference is. It's that forced time out for that sort of reflection and professional development. Yeah, and I think then the more difficult thing is coming back and changing your practices or at least having a few things out of the conference that, you know, that change what you do, how you think about something, and, you know, I'm certainly trying to encompass that in my clinical practice. So we're going to try and break up our discussion into three key themes. So the first theme is sleep loss. The second theme's talking about insomnia, and then we'll finish up talking about some of the trade show and the tech and new things that are coming in sleep. So with sleep loss, Simon, what was the main things presented and what were the things that you took away from the meeting? Well, sleep loss is um, obviously a very prevalent problem. And there are a number of sessions I went to to really tease that apart and showed you know, the cardiometabolic consequences of, of sleep loss you know, in sort of considerable detail. So there was a very interesting plenary session delivered by Eve Van Korter, who's a you know, well-known and respected uh, researcher, particularly in the area of sleep loss and its impacts on obesity and, uh, and diabetes uh, in particular. So she you know, she sort of painted this picture, you know, sort of looking at it from a, you know, from a wider perspective, put up this map of America as essentially a heat map of degrees of sleep loss across the various states. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some states, you know, dark red, you know, all the way through to orange. Superimposed on that was a map of obesity prevalence in those states. And they, you know, superimposed perfectly and then diabetes on top of that. So while that doesn't really infer causality, there's certainly, you know, an association there that really can't be ignored. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's the, the more global level. But where, where her research has taken her more recently is sort of looking at the at the molecular and cellular level about you know why this is occurring. Yeah, so that, that that was really sort of particularly interesting. And when you talk about sleep loss, are you talking about sort of voluntary sleep loss, as in I'm too busy, I've got to work two jobs and commute a long way? Or are you talking about I went to bed wishing to sleep and couldn't sleep? Did they sort of try and differentiate out? 
those two things? It wasn't. It wasn't specifically inferred. You know, from my understanding, this is this is more people who have voluntary sleep loss. Yeah. You know, we're, you know, I'm sort of thinking shift workers in particular. You know, where we see a combination of both sleep loss and a degree of circadian misalignment, mm-hmm. and you know, what the crux of her presentation was about is how those two systems interact yeah. you know, at a cellular level because mm-hmm. we know that things have moved on from our understanding that you've got this master clock sitting in the suprachiasmatic nucleus and it, you know, it, it controls every clock in every cell. We know that there's clocks in every cells and they can really sort of turn on and off and drive, you know, function at a cellular level. Mm-hmm. And so if there's misalignment in those clocks, there's going to be impacts in, in terms of biological function and that's what this focus was. Was sort of looking at the the metabolic impact of that. Yeah, and it's interesting. A couple of episodes ago, I spoke to Peter James from Harvard, who has done the work on the Nurses Health Study Two and night light exposure in shift workers. And so, whilst he showed that exposure to light at night in the public space in shift workers associated with breast cancer, not entirely clear whether that's not just a marker for something else, you know, circadian misalignment or the fact that you're out and about at a time when others are in bed. Sleep. So, yeah, it's probably this whole sort of milieu of sleep loss, circadian misalignment, light exposure, each of them having some negative impacts. And when it's not working in sync, the whole, the whole system fall apart. So you've got clocks in cells that are turning on and off at the wrong time and are controlling things like, you know, insulin and sugar metabolism with, you know, the wrong signals coming at the wrong time. And, you know, there was one particular study that she referred to that essentially showed that if you, you know, improve sleep in, in patients with diabetes, that you can have as much impact on their glycemic or their sugar control as adding another tablet to control their diabetes. So, you know, it sort of really shows you how important it is to get that that alignment worked out. Yeah. That thinking's been around for a while and sort of raises the, you know, we're, no, we're no, nowhere sort of close to this yet, but you think about, well, should we put people on a sleep-inducing medication, for example? Would that convey a diabetes benefit or is it you've got to induce that sleep by circadian alignment, by behavioural psychological strategies and how might those two strategies differ in their metabolic effects? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think we've got the answer to that. I, I think it's very important. The, the alignment is important, and it's something that we struggle with in our shift worker, you know, particularly the fast rotating shift workers, where they're you know, in this constant state of, of, you know, essentially jet lag. Where as I was sitting there in this, you know, hearing her give this fantastic presentation, imagining the forty trillion cells in my <laughs> clock all beating out of sync. Yeah. That's what our shift workers deal with on a daily basis. And we, as sleep physicians, really look at that as, you know, well, how does it affect sleep-wake scheduling? Yeah. But what this shows, it is it's much more complicated than that. And it's it's a whole body experience. It's got to do with digestion. It's got to do with, you know, seeking out the wrong food types. There's, there's good evidence that, you know, when people have got sleep deprivation, the types of foods that they choose are often what they label sort of hedonic type foods yeah. with, for some reason that's unexplained, energy output from those foods far greater than what's required to stay awake. And so that's sort of going to impact on obesity. So it's a complex picture. And I think one of the things that I was grappling with is, you know, I think this is at the, this is still in the research phase. I don't think this is really translating into clinical medicine yet, but that when it does, who, who owns 
that knowledge yeah. and who, whose job is it to say, well, you've got diabetes and you're a shift worker and there are issues in terms of your sugar control that's related to this. Is, is it us as sleep physicians? Is it an endocrinologist? Absolutely. And I remember just an anecdote. So in the early days of setting up the obesity clinic at Western Health, which is over 10 years ago, the staffing profile we had, we had an endocrinologist, a couple of sleep physicians and a bariatric surgeon. And the strange thing for me is we'd meet at the end of the clinic and talk and the endocrinologist would be asking us as the sleep physicians how to manage the circadian rhythm to better control someone's sugar. And at the time, I'm just thinking, you know what? That circadian metabolic stuff should be in your wheelhouse. You know, if you're an endocrinologist managing diabetes, you should actually you know, understand circadian systems. And, and I think that's something that's going to maybe have to filter into a whole range of different specialties that's not there at the minute, rather than other specialties going, oh, yeah, circadian stuff, that's asleep, guys, that, you know, that, they do that. I, mean, I think every specialty is going to have to understand the circadian sort of aspects. Interesting in diabetes too, with now the you know, continuous glucose monitoring, it's sort of unveiling the rhythmic nature to metabolic control. It was a bit invisible when you're just doing spot measurements. I totally agree with that. And I, th- I think we're quite a few steps away from this actually working in a clinical sense. And I think it's going to be a sort of potentially an unhappy marriage initially in terms of us as sleep physicians probably being more you know aware of the circadian impacts and it's a matter of how we deliver that message to the to the other specialists because you know I don't think it's going to be us controlling their sugars but we've got to be you know providing those messages to the people who do and then wasn't there some data as well about how different people have different susceptibility to sleep loss there's often a bit of a military presence there people presenting on stuff often you know research done ad hoc in battlefield or simulated battlefields it's interesting from a, a number of perspectives you know partly just seeing you know, how the armed forces work and how you know, things work out strategically and how people's sleep scheduling works, but also just the tricks of measuring sleep and performance in a battle or a simulated battle environment. So the session that I went to was looking at a group of armoured tank personnel. Mm -hmm. And so the way that the tanks apparently set up, there's four people in a tank and each of them have got different roles and different levels of seniority. And so this group was, I think they were somewhere in Europe on a one month sort of battlefield simulation. What was interesting is that they were given sufficient time to sleep each night. Often that sleep was in the tank. Mm -hmm. Despite having an adequate window for sleep, virtually none of the, the soldiers managed to achieve enough sleep, predominantly due to issues with sleep onset, um, so difficulty in initiating sleep at the beginning yeah. of the night. And the longer times to fall asleep correlated very well with the degree of seniority. So the more senior you were, the longer it took you to get off to sleep. They then measured performance, and I can't recall whether this was just with simple metrics like the psychomotor vigilance test or whether it was performance in terms of the specific tasks to those soldiers. But what they found is that there was varying ranges of susceptibility to sleep loss. So some people could incur quite a bit of sleep loss or sleep debt and still maintain very good performance, whereas other people were much less resilient to those effects and without you know, as soon as they started losing sleep, the performance tailed off. So that was the first interesting aspect. The second was that, you know, with these same people, they were assessing uh, responsiveness to caffeine and, again, found that some people were very responsive to caffeine in terms of salvaging that performance that they lost, others considerably less so. Because what they're interested in, in terms of getting the perfect soldier, is someone who is resilient to the the effects of sleep loss, maintaining performance. But if they know to, you can salvage them with caffeine. Yep. Whereas the people in that other in that other part of the grid where they're much more susceptible to the effects of sleep loss and caffeine's not going to work, well, 
not your perfect soldier. Yeah, that's a, that's really interesting, and you know, particularly as in the armed forces, it's not just caffeine. There's other weight promoting agents that are commonly used, amphetamines and modafinil. Fascinating about how there's just yeah that variation in how people respond to that same situation. I think it feeds in as well to some of this confusion that we have about you know how much people how much sleep people need in a particular night. And, you know, we had a couple of years ago the American Academy of Sleep Medicine coming out with that position statement saying that the average average adult needs a minimum of seven hours on a consistent basis. But when you dig beneath that, the range is actually quite wide. Yeah. And maybe it is just, in fact, that, well, there is a range and that some of us are just much better at dealing with less sleep than than others. Yeah, exactly. And that makes it confusing for people because you try and put out a consistent message in the community. People are trying to think, well, how much should I be aiming for? But it actually probably needs to be quite individualised. Yeah, and one of the things that they did to try and answer why there was this variability is now that with the relative cheap cost of doing genetic testing is they're able to do genetic sequences in all of these soldiers and see whether there are any genetic mutations involving any of the clock genes or in adenosine, which is a, a neurotransmitter that increases in amount the more you're awake and is the target of caffeine. And unfortunately, nothing came out in the in the wash, but this is something they're going to be looking at in more detail. So that's fascinating, the effects of sleep loss, and really highlights both the differential response to sleep loss, but also, you know, we're seeing people clinically and they say, look, I'm fine, I'm not sleepy, even though I'm not getting a whole lot of sleep. It ain't necessarily about the sleepiness. There may actually be some consequences of not sleeping. Now then to sort of change tack a bit, talk about Insomnia, which yeah, think of that as involuntary sleep loss versus voluntary sleep loss. What were some of the things that you saw at the meeting about insomnia? There are a few things. Pro- probably the main focus was the guys out of Penn State who uh, a number of years ago now defined what they term as an ins- a phenotype of insomnia where people, when measured in a sleep laboratory, have objectively short sleep time. So these are people who not only perceive that they're not sleeping much very, ni- very much at night, but when you bring them into the sleep laboratory, you sort of actually confirm that with EEG measurements. And they showed in their cohort and in a number of other that have reproduced this is that that particular type of insomnia is associated with adverse cardiometabolic outcomes longer term and also mortality as well. So we, we know that hyperarousal is a very common, almost universal feature in insomnia. It's something that we see most commonly, I guess, as a, a cognitive type of hyperarousal. And some of us now are looking at EEG recordings of patients in the sleep laboratory with insomnia and we can see... EEG evidence of this with much faster rhythms than we would normally expect to see in sleep. But there was quite a bit of talk now about them measuring biomarkers. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, measuring various markers of the stress system being overactivated, cortisol, corticotrophic hormone, noradrenaline, features of symp- sympathetic nervous activation, heart rate variability. Uh, metabolic rate, and also immune system activation, mm-hmm. measuring interleukins and C-reactive protein, showing that the people with insomnia and short sleep duration have much higher evidence of this sort of physiological type of hyperarousal. So rather than just the cognitive aspects of it, there is a physiological basis to this. And that might explain some of those those adverse metabolic outcomes that seems to be tied with this. Mm-hmm. And also why perhaps some of these people, and there was a trial that came out last year that showed this uh, less or more more likely to have a blunted response to the cognitive behavioural therapy that we'd normally 
you know, go out with them first line. Yeah, and it's certainly, you know, that phenotyping sort of concept's been evolving over a number of years. And as that sort of crystallises and more and more evidence accumulates for that, it does sort of lend back towards, you know, thinking about doing objective measurement of sleep in a sleep laboratory in people with insomnia. At the very same time, some of, you know, some of the recommendations and guidelines are saying don't measure sleep in the sleep laboratory in people with insomnia. So the sort of guidelines and recommendations are trailing a bit behind where the science is at the moment. I think it's difficult, though. It's, you know, the, the, the data that they present is very convincing and it's very compelling. And I, I think they're, you know, there's certainly something in it. I struggle when I'm sitting with an individual patient about working out, are they this or aren't they this? And, you know, you know do we hang someone on, on one night in a sleep laboratory? Exactly. Um, so I think clinically I'm having difficulty picking it. Yeah, I, I agree. And we probably don't have the perfect tool because the perfect tool would be an accurate longitudinal sort of in-the-home sleep measurement device. I mean, it's not quite there yet. You know, consumer activity tracking devices are not too bad, but, you know, plus or minus an hour on any given night, it's just not the accuracy that you need to to get that information. They're continuing to, to promote this and I you know, it'll be interesting to see in future incarnations of insomnia descriptions whether you know, whether we're going down that path. But I don't think it's quite there. I think it's more looking at it at a population level rather than an individual sitting with me uh, during a consultation. There were a couple of other just uh, smaller bits that came out with insomnia. There was a, a nice study that was presented showing sustained benefits from the shut-eye uh, program, which is an online module um, of CBTI, because previously studies had only shown sort of short-term benefits, but there was a study that showed sustained benefits out mm -hmm. to 12 months, which you know, for people using that type of intervention, uh, you know, I guess is encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. And just uh, another small study that was presented looking at using wearable technology to deliver information about sleep to an app that then tailored advice about mainly sort of behavioural aspects of insomnia management to you. So this sort of link between wearable technology and an app, you know, giving someone day-to-day you know, -day feedback about how they're going. So I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, absolutely. My favourite part of the conference is the trade show, the sort of devices, the, you know, looking at what's new. So what's new, Simon? Well, there's a lot of wearable technology. It was really everywhere. Wristbands, there was a ring called the Aura Ring. That well, that's, from, that's from Australia. No. Is that Australian? Okay. So three designs, four colours, eight sizes. But what was interesting about all of these is they're all marketed as, as leisure devices. Mm -hmm. I think, among other things, what that allows them to do is sort of bypass a lot of the regulatory headaches that would be given if they uh, you know, promoted these things as, as health devices, even though, you know, giving lots of information about deep sleep, light sleep, how much you're sleeping, it's their, their leisure devices. Okay. Another Australian one was based on some work that Leon Lack um, at Flinders did a few years ago with what they termed at the time intensive sleep retraining yep. treatment, where they took people with chronic insomnia disorder who had you know, these conditioned arousal responses and sleep deprived them and then very rapidly woke them every time they fell asleep, I think about 50 times, to sort of replace that conditioned arousal response of bed equals sleep to lots of positive experiences of being able to initiate sleep very quickly. So the, the group that's come out with a little device you wear over your finger that vibrates. That's the one I was thinking of. So this is the one you're talking about, not the aura. Yeah, I don't know where they've actually come from, but it was based on Leon's work and there was Australian guys at the stand. You tell it when you're going to sleep and it's able to sense when you're falling asleep and over the first hour, every three minutes, it vibrates to wake you up. Oh, okay. So it's, I guess it's a little bit different from what they were doing in their very 
highly controlled clinical trial in a slit laboratory, but it's interesting. Yeah. Retails for a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> the only other thing I wanted to really mention really wasn't at the trade show, but just, um, I guess something that's sort of up and coming is there's a, a drug that's been in phase three clinical trials for a while now, previously known as JZP110. It's now been given the name Solriamfetol. No chance of remembering no, that. Well, that's, I think that's part of the idea because the yeah. trade name will be catchy. So this works on dopamine and noradrenaline and there's lots of good data and this was presented at the conference too, showing you know very robust wake-promoting effects but also improvements in quality of life and work productivity. So you sort of get the sense that this is probably not too far off coming to market. Yeah, that's really exciting. We've been sort of following the progress of JZP110 over a number of years and you and I have followed those results and they've been promising. So thanks, Simon, for that summary of some of the key things you found from the sleep meeting. So my sort of take on that is sleep loss. It's not just about the sleepiness and everyone's going to respond differently to sleep loss, which just makes it somewhat harder in terms of communicating more public health messages about sleep back to a more individualised sort of messages and lots of innovation. But some of the challenges in that tech space is what we face every day. There's hard to actually pick what works from what's just a good story. Lots of really good stories but sometimes not quite as much data, particularly with the wearables and the technology gets ahead of the science sometimes. So if people are looking for more information about the sleep meeting, the website's sleepmeeting.org. You can actually buy a slide set of all the postgraduate courses, which is a pretty rich lot of information. The courses are usually really good. That's 300 American dollars. And the meeting in 2019 is going to be in San Antonio in early June. So now you've told us about the meeting, Simon, what have you brought home? What's your clinical tip of the month? Something that you've come home, you said, right, this is going to change what I do and I'm going to put it into place. So the, probably the main thing I, I brought back, there were a number of people speaking about circadian rhythm disturbances and ways that we can shift clock timing. And I guess particularly for our patients with delayed sleep phase disorder, you know, how we can use a combination of melatonin and bright light therapy to you know move their timing earlier. And I do try and individualise this with my patients and previously had had a strategy where every three days I would move things about half an hour earlier. But there are a couple of speakers there who uh, were much more in favour of doing uh, more rapid moves, so half an hour every day. Mm -hmm. And so this is something I've been trying in a few patients since I've come back because it sort of makes a bit more sense. You get, I guess, to build up a bit more sleep pressure, facilitate earlier sleep onset, Mm -hmm. and also, you know, perhaps getting a bit closer to that, that sweet spot where that light in the morning really helps give someone a big bump mm-hmm. because sometimes with those you know three day shifts or you know in some patients you know once a week shifts you just lose a bit of momentum yeah. get a bit stuck and it's just sort of it's much more rapid you know a couple of weeks and you're there mm-hmm. so we'll see how it goes let, let us know the one other pearl that i give is actually not mine but this was from the evan quarter plenary session mm-hmm. now i'm not a, a researcher but her advice to researchers was that if you have a paper rejected to continue to try and resubmit it to the best journal and the case in point was her sleep debt study, which was published back in the 90s, was rejected four times. It was ultimately published in The Lancet, and it's been cited 1,200 times since then. Wow. So, yeah, good advice. It's it's hard work, though, to continue to keep resubmitting, rewriting, that sort of things with journals, but nice advice. Need a thick skin. Uh, So, David, what's your clinical tip of the month? So one thing I really liked that's still on the theme of the sleep meeting was Julie Flyger, who's a lady with narcolepsy, but a great advocate for healthy sleep and for 
for narcolepsy. She's written a really nice summary of the latest treatments about narcolepsy that were discussed at the meeting, including the pharmacological treatments, both sort of what's under review at the minute and in clinical trials and the things that are coming along. So, yeah, highly recommend that. It was a really nice summary of where things are at with narcolepsy at the moment. Now, what about for you, Simon? Yeah, so mine's a bit more clinical than that. Fairly dense document released by the Academy of Sleep Medicine, which was their position statement on treatment of nightmare disorder, mm-hmm. um, which is something that you know I do struggle with in in you know a number of patients, particularly those with post traumatic stress disorder. These documents are generally you know, very well referenced and researched, and um, you know give a nice contemporary understanding of where the clinical data lies. The two interesting things that I've taken from that is that Prazosin, which had been our medication first port of call has actually been downgraded in its uh, quality of evidence. Mm-hmm. We're still able to use it, but it's not the recommended first-line treatment, and that's based on a, a recently released clinical trial that seems to have contradicted a lot of the, the evidence that we'd had previously about it, mm-hmm. which sort of fits with my personal experience with it yeah. and sometimes a bit hit and miss. The only thing that really came out you know, with a, a solid recommendation was image rehearsal therapy, which mm-hmm. is a modified form of cognitive behavioural therapy, which makes it difficult because there's, it's a highly specialised area. I'm not really aware of anyone in Australia that, that does that as a particular interest. No, no one's got a particular interest. There are actually some of the trauma groups do do image rehearsal therapy. And Moira, when she was working here and still in her work in Yarraville, often does that with patients as well. So she's got some experience with it. Yeah, there was one. I actually saw a patient earlier this week who has been doing eye movement desensitisation. It's actually reporting very good effects with it. And so that's actually also mentioned in this paper. All right, I'll have to have a read of that. That sounds really good. So a few things to look out for that are coming up in sleep. Some of the sleep meetings that are coming up. So one's the Southeast Asian Academy of Sleep Medicine International Meeting in Lucknow in October. We'll have to get you there, Simon. Great kebabs in Lucknow. I know all the good kebab stores. The Sleep Down Under meeting in Brisbane, uh, October 17 to October 20. So that's the annual scientific meeting for the Australasian Sleep Association and a really good meeting. And Hans van Dongen is going to be one of the guest speakers at that meeting. And he did a lot of the work on differential susceptibility to sleep loss and impacts of sleep loss. So there'll be a bit of a more of a discussion about that at that meeting. And as we've talked about, the Sleep 2019 meeting is going to be in San Antonio in June of next year. The next couple of episodes of the podcast are going to be about depression. So we'll do two episodes on depression and have some guests to help us out. So Associate Professor Sean Kane from Monash University and Professor David Plant from the University of Wisconsin. So look out for those. So thanks for listening. If you've got any suggestions for the podcast, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au and review us on iTunes and subscribe via any podcast app or the Sleep Talk app in the iOS store. Thanks for your help, Simon. Thanks for having me on. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.